Good morning and welcome to Real Truth for Today. Pastor Jeff Shreve here, the pastor of First Baptist Church in Texarkana, Texas. I want to read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter that Paul ever penned before he got his head cut off. He said to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. We have a tendency as human beings, we have a tendency as the church, we have a tendency as uh, a seminary, a place of higher learning for uh, biblical training to get off track, to leave our first love. And uh, the Apostle Paul said the job of a preacher, and Timothy was a preacher and a pastor in Ephesus, his job was to preach the word, and as he preached the word, he would reprove, he would rebuke before he would exhort. And we need to constantly be reminded as we come to church and as we study the Word of God, where is True North and how to return to True North. Well, today in the studio, it's a great privilege to have Pastor Mike Stone, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia. Mike, thanks for being my guest today. Jeff, it's an honor to be here. I've enjoyed being on the program a couple of times, but I've never been here in Texarkana. What I a know. beautiful place, oh, thank beautiful you. city, beautiful facility you have, and just honored to be with you. Well, Mike is here. He's doing a, a tour of some cities to talk to pastors, talk to those who are interested about the state of the Southern Baptist Convention. And Mike uh, has agreed to be a candidate for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention as we meet uh, in just a few weeks in June in, uh, in New Orleans. Louisiana. And so, uh, Mike, first question, uh, why would you want to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, I would trust that each of your listeners would be able to understand. It's just simply what I sense as the call of God. From a human perspective, there are a lot of challenges that the SBC is facing. They represent in some ways uh, all that's going on in American evangelicalism more broadly and generally. But there are some unique challenges the SBC is facing right now, and uh, I have plenty to say grace over in the heart of Southeast <laughs> Georgia. I pastor a wonderful church that is a larger church in our convention uh, context. Plenty to do there as a busy pastor and leader, uh, outside preaching opportunities. I have a wife and four beautiful children, so there's a, the plate is already full. Right. But uh, going back a few months ago, sensing some challenges that are, in my view, even represent some existential threats for the cooperation and the unity within the SBC, just sense the Lord leading me to throw my name back in the ring, so to speak, mm -hmm. and uh, seek to provide some leadership and raise some issues for our broader family of Southern Baptists. Well, for those, uh, Mike, that don't know, um, you know, just the average person, he doesn't know the inner workings of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, a lot of pastors don't know the inner workings of the Southern Baptist Convention. It gets very complicated to have all the committees work and things like that. But just for the average person that goes to a Baptist church or, or you know, sees a Baptist church, knows, knows a little bit about it. Uh, what would you say are the biggest issues facing Southern Baptists today? Well, I'll give them to you in no particular uh, order. 
But uh, just last week, the what we call the annual church profile, those are statistics that Southern Baptist churches, which are all independent and autonomous, we voluntarily cooperate, and uh, churches turn in and submit statistical data from their church year, from the previous 12 months. And uh, each year, just ahead of the annual meeting of the SBC, which is uh, June 13 and 14 in New Orleans, as you mentioned, uh, the compiled data from across the Southern Baptist Convention, some 47,000-plus churches, that compiled data is released. Last week, it was reported that when you add all the numbers together, in our last calendar year, Southern Baptist lost 457,000 members across the churches affiliated with our convention. Mm -hmm. That is the largest single drop in membership in over a century. Mm -hmm. We are now down to 13.2 million members. And uh, that still sounds like a large number. We continue to be the largest uh, non-Catholic convention or denomination, some would say, of churches uh, in North America. And so we're grateful for the size and scope of the Southern Baptist Convention and what God can allow us to do. But we are in a very dangerous and precipitous uh, decline. We see that even with our collective uh, missions offerings across the country, what Southern Baptists call the cooperative program. Nationwide, when you add it all together, it's down tens of millions of dollars over its height uh, just a few years ago. Mm -hmm. We not only lost 457,000 members, that is individual people who are members of Southern Baptist congregations, but we lost 416 churches. Mm-hmm. 416 congregations that for one reason or another uh, are no longer in cooperation with or connected to the work of Southern Baptist. So we are, by many metrics and standards, a convention in decline. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, at- Mike, the 416, is that, is that when you add in all the ones that we planted and that's the net or we just lost? Yeah, my, my understanding is that that is a net loss. Okay. And in either case, it's a, it's a very it's a large lot. number. Right. And uh, many of those churches, I don't have, you know, the data on why those churches right. departed, but I can tell you at least anecdotally with a lot of personal anecdotes. As a leader in the SBC, I get the calls and the text and the emails, as I know you do as well. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of churches that just feel the SBC is headed in a wrong direction on a number of issues, and they are choosing to disaffiliate themselves mm-hmm. uh, from the work of Southern Baptists and become, you know, a, quote, independent Baptist church or maybe a Bible church, but no longer be in what we call friendly cooperation with the SBC. So we are, we've lost a, a huge number, a century record number of individual members in SBC churches, and we lost 416 churches. When you add into that mm-hmm. some of the financial declines and other challenges that we're facing, these, these are really, really uh, challenging times for our convention of churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on the decline issue, as the pastor of a church that has seen uh, good evangelistic growth in the heart of a very small town in southeast Georgia, God's really put on my heart, if elected as president, to help lead an evangelism initiative for the churches of our mm-hmm. convention, just right. challenging local congregations to be much more intentionally evangelistic. I, 
uh, our, our church has been a leader in baptisms in our state convention of Georgia, and uh, just want to carry some of that energy and evangelistic fervor uh, across the churches of our convention. So that that's one very important issue that we're facing. Right. Uh, I had uh, Dr. Chuck Kelly on the program just a couple of weeks ago, and he's written a new book called The Best Intentions, How a Plan to Revitalize the SBC Accelerated Its Decline. And he speaks in the book about uh, North American Mission Board starting to take on the job of will plant churches and then church they're they're disconnected from the church in the area uh mike why is that a bad strategy well i've been sharing with pastors and groups across the country that uh, about a decade or so ago 11 12 years ago when we moved in this direction organizationally uh, the north american mission board from my perspective began placing far too many of its uh, evangelism eggs in the basket of church planting mm-hmm. uh, i believe that churches are church plants are going to be healthiest when they are planted by other churches mm-hmm. um, healthy things begat after their own and reproduce after their own kind Dogs produce dogs, cats produce cats, Mm -hmm. and churches produce churches. What we've done uh, through the North American Mission Board and and this restructuring of the Southern Baptist Convention over a decade ago, we have taken church planting to more of a national initiative, which is overseen out of the offices of the North American Mission Board in Alpharetta, which is, um, you know, Metro Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the things that happens is it's, it's, it's caused local congregations to more easily, <clears throat> the more easily take their eye off the ball, uh, and to, um, in some ways, delegate their responsibility to planting churches and uh, spreading the gospel to uh, an organizational structure, rather than taking that on. First of all, personally, as an individual believer in Christ, I have a duty to share the gospel, and right. then my local congregation uh, has that responsibility as well. Well, I know that uh, the numbers are don't look good uh, at all, and uh, we're spending a lot of money uh, to produce less baptisms. And uh, that was what Chuck Kelly brought out: is uh, hey, this is this is a wrong turn. And so, Mike, when you look at it, uh, because we're not in a good place, and I always use this with my church: the the one in sixty rule for aviation. For every one degree you're off on your flight plan. For every 60 miles, you're going to be a mile off course. So the longer you fly, the more it becomes evident, hey, we're way off of what we need to do. And at the starting point, it was just a little bit off. What do you think in the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, because we had the big, you know, the the shift back to conservatism uh, back in the, the late 70s, early 80s, and things seemed to be great uh, as far as, hey, we're, we're going back to true north. Where did we get off track from the days of, hey, turning from liberalism back to conservatism, and now we're in the shape we're in? Well, for starters, whether you're talking about an individual or an organization, the shift and the natural drift is never to the right. One of my favorite hymns says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, and that is the natural tendency of the heart. No person, no church, no uh, network of churches, no convention of churches, has ever drifted toward godliness, righteousness, <laughs> no. fervor, and enthusiasm. Right. Uh, the passage that you read from Paul to Timothy mm-hmm. to begin the program uh, is there for a reason, for this very reason. We have to be constantly spurred on and challenged and exhorted uh, to godliness and righteousness. I, I think 
one of the things that has happened is just organizationally that we have looked to a lot of our national entities to do certain things that that really need to be fleshed out on the ground in the local church by individual mm-hmm. believers. When you add to that that we are in um, we're in the North American Mission Board, the Southern Baptist Convention, largely in this North American culture, uh, that their their general trends in evangelicalism more broadly. And we are a part of that. And so that's presenting a real challenge to us as well. But one of the issues is that grassroots Southern Baptists are uh, decreasingly involved, or you could say they are increasingly unengaged. Mm -hmm. With 47,000 Southern Baptist churches in North America, each of them receiving at least two and perhaps up to 12 messengers, who could go to the annual meeting, and I know there are geographic and financial challenges to go, mm-hmm. uh, we're estimating and anticipating around 12,000 messengers in New Orleans for the annual meeting. So you're basically talking about one voter, one messenger. Some some denominations may call them representatives or delegates. We call them messengers. One messenger for every four churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're voting on everything. Yes, and th- that, that's a, that is just statistical fact that that's a high level of unengagement mm-hmm. in, in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hear it regularly from members of my church, for example. Social media has changed the communication. And so um, things that used to have to wait on a state Baptist paper to produce its biweekly report and the pastors and staff members would read it, now, within minutes, it's in everybody's hand. It's in everybody's pocket uh, through social media. Mm-hmm. And so our members can find out a lot of what's, of what's going right. on in the convention. But that has not translated into actual engagement at our annual meeting where the votes actually happen. And so I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face in our days is, um, is just an unengagement or disengagement. And money tends to follow vision. If someone feels unengaged, uh, feel like their concerns are not being heard, mm-hmm. that there's no real avenue where they could voice their concerns and see them uh, fleshed out, money tends to follow that vision, either in a positive or a negative way. So I think that's that's really one of the large systemic challenges we're facing as a convention of churches. We're talking to Pastor Mike Stone, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia. And uh, Mike is a candidate for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention that will meet in June. And he's in the studio today, and he's going to conduct that after we do the radio broadcast. He's going to uh, meet with some pastors and concerned church members and just do a Q&A. And he's just willing to uh, to talk and say, hey, what are your questions? And uh, this is what I see, and, and this is what we want to have happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. Obviously, we want to reach people for Christ. We want churches to be vibrant and growing, and we want the Lord Jesus to be magnified. Well, I'm Pastor Jeff Shreve, and we're up against a break. Go away. We'll be right back. A charitable gift annuity through the AFA Foundation is an excellent way to provide yourself with guaranteed permanent income while at the same time supporting the American Family Association. Here's what one supporter told us. I very much want to see God's word continue into the next generation. This is a way I can help AFA spread the truth and promote their biblical stand. My experience with the AFA Foundation continues to remind me 
that I have a small part in helping AFA in the battle for our nation's values. Financial planning is essential to your family. A charitable gift annuity through the AFA Foundation is one way you can support AFA and the health of our nation. The planners at the AFA Foundation are here to help you do the most with your finances. You can call us at 800-326-4543, extension 345. Find us on Facebook or email foundation at afa.net and learn whether a charitable gift annuity is right for you. Let's be real. Retirement is expensive and inflation is making it even harder with the cost of everything going up from pet food to a dozen eggs. Wouldn't it be great if the cost of your health care could go down? Well, MediShare 65 plus is $99 a month for ages 65 to 74. And for many with Medicare Parts A and B looking at other options, that's 50% or more saved per month. No gimmicks. It's $99 a month, and you can use any Medicare-approved doctor or facility, and you get 24-7 access to telehealth from the convenience of your home. Better yet, MediShare is a Christian nonprofit organization. It's a community that will pray for you and encourage you. And since we've cut out the middleman, you get to keep the savings. Call now. You can learn more about MediShare 65+. Here's the number, 833-45-BIBLE. That's 833-45-BIBLE, 833-45-BIBLE. In this new world, on this new day, we rejoice that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Preborn has been preparing for this moment for the past 16 years by positioning their clinics in the top six abortion states where 50% of abortions occur. Sadly, five of these six states will continue to abort babies at an even greater level. And since the abortion pill accounts for over 50% of abortions, babies are even more at risk. Preborn pregnancy clinics are completely dependent on you as they offer life-saving ultrasounds and the life-saving gospel to moms and babies in crisis. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. To learn how you can be a part of rescuing babies' lives and sharing the heart of Jesus, go to preborn.com or dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. Welcome back to Real Truth for Today. Pastor Jeff Shreve here. We have in the studio Pastor Mike Stone, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, and he's been there for 20... 26 and a half. 26 and a half years, and uh, came as the worship pastor, and then became the senior pastor when that, uh, that position opened up, and you probably weren't thinking about that at the time. No, I actually told our pulpit committee to be prepared to hire a pastor that wanted to bring his music minister with right. him. I thought I was going to leave and go with my predecessor and transition into more of an associate pastor's role. Yeah. But God actually used that comment to begin stirring the heart of our then pulpit committee that maybe I was sensing a call out of a more specific music ministry. And in the providence of God, uh, next month will actually be 21 years that I'll celebrate my pastoral anniversary mm-hmm. there as senior pastor. Yeah. How, how has it been for you as pastor? You know, pastors, I shared yesterday, pastors have ups and downs. And yeah. we have difficulties we have to go through. That's true for every pastor. Um, in your 21 years as the pastor, uh, what, are, what are some some challenges that you've had to deal with, Mike? 
Well, one is just realizing that churches like people go through seasons. And sometimes those seasons that seem to be less growth, uh, you go through a season of growth, a real spirit of revival, and then there seems to be a lull. And sometimes those lulls, um, when they're not uh, motivated by apathy, if there's just a, a slowing of growth, that can be something that God can use to give you an opportunity to, to regroup, address organizational issues, even facilities, and things of that nature. And so early on, I saw some of those lulls as a sign that maybe God's hand and blessing <laughs> was not on our church. And uh, as a more seasoned pastor, that's a nicer way than saying old. Uh, but as a more seasoned and experienced pastor, yeah. I now recognize that's the, that's the ebb and flow of life. Right. It's the ebb and uh, flow of ministry. And for any pastors or other ministers that are listening to the program today, uh, let that be a word of encouragement. Um, it may just not be due season yet to begin reaping some of that harvest. But Paul told the Galatians, and it's a joy to share today, that um, the Bible promises that if we continue and don't grow weary in well-doing, then in due season we will reap if we mm-hmm. if we don't faint. But, the, man, there have been those ups and downs and highs and lows, and, and not not only just through seasons, but even through a day. Things can go well, and, you know, one phone call can change all of that, right. either as a pastor or, or, or as a dad. Right. Uh, this Easter, I preached, and we had two services for Easter, and first service went really well and you know you're feeling all jazzed and you got another service in 30 minutes and some lady came up to me and complaining about this and that something I said and you know uh, it's just like well that's how the devil works well this past Sunday night we have a vibrant Sunday night service and and I thought it was going to be just a a little Bible study as we continue to work through the book of Judges that's what I'm preaching on Sunday Mm -hmm. nights and it was Mother's Day Sunday night. I anticipated, you know, very low attendance, uh, that sort of thing. And I had what I felt like was a little Bible study. But, I'm, you know, honestly, I just sensed the, the Holy Spirit get on that message, so mm-hmm. to speak. And God really blessed it and seemed to move and touch a lot of lives. And one of my staff members said, man, you said that was going to be just a, you know, little right. little Bible study. Man, God got on that thing, as mm-hmm. we say in South Georgia. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I felt that, but it, it makes up a little bit for all the times the hundreds of times that on <laughs> on Thursday or Friday in my study, I felt I had a red hot word from God and it right. died on the way to the pulpit. Yeah, that's a, that's a challenge, you know. And my pastor told me, Demonchuk, he said, uh, you know, sometimes you'll preach something and it's really, really good and God really blesses it. And you put that in the file and you say, I'm going to preach that again sometime. And you go six months later and you try and resurrect the dead and you're, you hadn't been studying it like you did the first time. And it's just not fresh and it doesn't go. Yeah, and God may, especially in the pastoral ministry, uh, God may have given you some special and unique insight for something going on in your congregation at that time, or maybe just the discernment of the Holy Spirit. You made a comment or emphasized Mm -hmm. a certain thing because the Spirit of God knew that some person or family in the church needed to hear that particular emphasis, and it may that may have been the thing that really seemed to have the power mm-hmm. of God on it. But as a as a preacher who preaches a lot of revivals, I know the pain of thinking that didn't go tonight like it went six months ago when mm-hmm. I thought it was one of the best sermons that I've ever preached. Right. Well, I, as I've gotten older, Mike, I've learned to not live and die by attendance, to not live and die by decisions. Uh, I need to be faithful to preach the word. I need to do the best job I can. I got to leave the results to God. I, I I can't talk anybody into being saved. That's the Holy Spirit's job to convict and to convert. All I can do is present Jesus in a way that 
makes sense and uh, is is you know it's not convoluted or against the scripture or something like that. But then, uh, as Charles Stanley used to say, "Hey, trust in the Lord and leave the results with God." Yeah, my congregation regularly hears me say, "There's one standard of success in the life of a believer, and that is obedience." to simply do what God has called you to do. And early in my ministry, I lived on that roller coaster of judging my ministry and my effectiveness based on what happened at the end of the sermon. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as a more experienced pastor, and I pray more mature believer, I now try to look with the reality that the evaluation of my ministry is not at the end of the service. It's going to be at the end of the age. Sometimes right. when, you, when you preach and we might say the altar is most full, people responded visibly and publicly, may in the scope of eternity be one of the services where the least of eternal significance actually mm-hmm. happened. There may be another occasion where you, you didn't even see anyone get up and go to the bathroom you know, right. when, you, <laughs> when you preach. But yet you may find out later on and perhaps just at the feet of the Lord when we get uh, into the Lord's presence in eternity, you may find out that that's the thing that God used, that sermon, that song, that mm-hmm. act of service. That's the thing that God used to radically transform someone's life for the sake of the gospel and the cause of eternity. So, again, uh, I am I have learned and am continuing to learn on a daily and weekly basis to not evaluate the mm-hmm. success of the ministry based on the immediate visible results. Well, I think about Noah a lot and uh, preached for 100 years, 120. You know, it's kind of a little vague in there how long he was building the ark. But uh, he had no results other than his family. And he was still faithful to do it. I, I hold him in such high regard because, Mike, as you know, most of us would have just said, it is enough, oh Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my <laughs> father's. I mean, I can't do this. I'm obviously not any good at this. Uh, but he was faithful, and God used him in great ways. Yeah. Uh, I won't go into all the details of this story, but suffice to say, the worst sermon that I think I ever preached, and I still believe it's the worst sermon, what we preachers would call homiletically. I mean, it was an egg, if I've ever ever laid an egg. In fact, during the benediction, I walked over to the staff member who handles our media, and he had his head bowed you know, for the benediction, but I was standing there when the amen was said. I looked at him, and I said, if that audio ever sees a CD, an MP3 <laughs> file, if it's on the podcast, YouTube, I will sacrifice your firstborn child on the fiery altar of Molech. Uh, obviously, a little sarcasm there at sure. the end. He looked at me and said, I understand. <laughs> However, uh, two days later, a couple sat in my office, and I, I won't go into all the details of this except to say it is literally the most dynamic story of my 21-year pastorate of what God did in someone's life through the sermon that I had preached. When they came in and tried telling me what happened, they, they, were, they were weeping, they were broken, and they said, it's, it's what God did in the, in the sermon as, you, as the sermon was being preached Sunday night. And I wanted to say, were you visiting over at Beulah? Were you visiting for you know, a nephew's baptism? Where were you? you? I thought you clearly couldn't have been here. Yeah. And it's just a reminder, man, the, the, the power is in the Word. Right. God doesn't need our fancy outlines. Our hum- We should do our best you know, to, to right. be skilled in the task God's called us to. But, but God doesn't need our pulpit. 
prowess. Uh, he, no. Not many mighty, not many noble are called, right. but the power is in the Word. And uh, I pray that'd be an encouragement to some of the listeners today. I got to tell you this story, Mike. So one of the guys that uh, told me he's coming today is a pastor in Arkansas, and uh, he used to pastor here in Texarkana, and he said it was right around October 31st, and so he thought, well, okay, people are trick-or-treating. So he did a sermon on Genesis 3, and he called it When the Devil Goes Trick-or-Treating. Okay. And he said it just didn't go. He said, I thought it, I thought it, man, this could go. It didn't go. And his mother was in the service, and, and after this, after the service was over, she said to her son, Bobby, she goes, uh, that wasn't very good, Shug. And so uh, we, he, I play golf with him a lot, and so we, we use that phrase a lot when we hit a bad shot. Well, that wasn't very good, Shug. Well, well, our phrase, one Sunday I came home, and my wife, who is my closest friend and biggest supporter by far, I came in you know, from Sunday morning services and sat down at lunch, and I said, mm, that sermon never really felt like it left the building. And she just said, well, they can't all be home runs. Yeah. And I looked at her, and I said, no, let me explain to you what you're supposed to say. When I say they can't all be home runs, you're supposed to say, what? That was one of, the, one of the finest sermons on whatever the subject was I've ever heard in all my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, for those wives listening that have, uh, that have husbands who are pastors and preachers, uh, yeah, we need encouragement, especially when it doesn't go well. We don't need you to lie to us, but but we do need uh, encouragement because every pastor goes through that, and and not every sermon is a home run. You yeah. want you want to get on base. You don't want to strike out at at the pulpit, but um, you know God does use it, and it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And so, if we're faithful to to study, to prepare, to prepare our hearts, God will bless. Okay, so Mike, back to the situations going on in the Southern Baptist Convention because. I know a lot of pastors would say, why would you want to subject yourself to this again, Mike? You went through this in Nashville just a couple of years ago. You got smeared. You got lied about, which is just horrible to think that's what's going on in the convention. But it's reality. And uh, there are, it's become political, which it shouldn't be, but it has. Uh, we talked about the uh, numerical decline. We talked about the the decline in evangelism. You know, we used to have a lot of evangelism training in the churches. Not very many churches do that anymore. Um, and so it, it's like, well, the times are different, but still we need to know how to share our faith. What else is a big concern in the Southern Baptist Convention? Well, you ask why, um, why would I feel led to run, even though two years ago there were a lot of false accusations and slander and so forth. I really feel like that process inoculated or vaccinated me to some of the criticisms that are going on now because, Jeff, I hear from pastors all across the country who recognize and share the concerns that I have, but they also recognize that in today's uh, vitriolic social media world, they don't want to be the one raising their voice or making the point because they know that they're going to be vilified and their church can be attacked even by people who claim to be within the body of Christ. And that is, a, that is certainly a spiritual uh, tragedy uh, when that happens. But specifically, one of the issues that I think the SBC needs to address, we must continue to address the very serious and the very real issue of sexual abuse. Uh, when it occurs in churches that are affiliated with or in cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, I have been very open for the last several years about my own childhood from age 8 to age 10. Uh, I suffered greatly at the hands of an abuser. I did not share that story for the better part of 40 years. So I know firsthand what it's like to live with abuse and with the trauma and the challenges of that. And unfortunately, sexual abuse is one of those things that is it is in our culture, the abuse of children, women, uh, vulnerable populations. 
And tragically, sometimes that happens in churches. And the only thing that I could think that would make sexual abuse worse is when it's done under the banner of the name of the Lord Jesus, which makes it a blasphemy issue Mm -hmm. as well. So these things do occur in churches that are uh, connected to the Southern Baptist Convention, but that's where they occur, by individual bad actors in individual Baptist churches. And in the last several years, the Southern Baptist Convention at the national corporate level has made statements and taken actions that seem to indicate that we at the national level are responsible for things that happen by individual people in individual churches. Because of that, we are uh, taking upon ourselves, I think needlessly so, um, incredible and growing liability cost, legal cost, and we have invited unto ourselves by some of our actions and statements uh, a federal investigation by the Department of Justice. Some of your listeners may not know the Southern Baptist Convention is under investigation right now uh, by the DOJ. And that's because we have allowed ourselves to be represented, I would say misrepresented, as having covered up sexual abuse at the highest levels of the Southern Baptist Convention. We are not the Roman Catholic Church. We are not Not the United Methodist Church. We're we're not a top-down hierarchical corporation. Uh, I don't work for the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, if, If you want to turn the thing over... The Southern Baptist Convention answers to its local churches, not the other way Mm -hmm. around. But we have begun to adopt, with some of our language, this hierarchical sense of responsibility. Even some of our leaders, one in particular, put on Twitter that the SBC collectively should embrace the collective responsibility that we have for issues that occur in any one of our churches. And uh, that's not legally accurate. That's not, um, uh, it's not ecclesiologically accurate accurate. Mm -hmm. But we are spending ourselves to the brink of financial insolvency, largely claiming responsibility for things that the convention itself did not do. In February of this year, the auditors for the Southern Baptist Executive Committee returned a status of unsustainable. And when I use that word, I point out that the unsustainable moniker, that label, that's not my opinion as a pastor. That's the assessment of one of the largest CPA accounting firms uh, in the country that have said the trajectory that we are on Mm -hmm. at the Southern Baptist Convention Executive Committee, the National Corporate Board, is an unsustainable trajectory. And it is largely because of these legal expenses that we have brought on to ourselves, not because we've covered up sexual abuse, but because we have been willing to be misrepresented in that way. Mm -hmm. And I want to say one more time for clarity. That is not to say that sexual abuse is not real and that it has not occurred and that in some cases, in many cases, the perpetrators or other bad actors around that situation have engaged in that cover up. Mm -hmm. But the question is not, did the abuse happen? Did a cover up happen? The question for the Southern Baptist Convention at the national corporate level is who did it? and who should therefore be responsible for it. And I say that responsibility should be placed on the individual bad actor or the congregation itself, not on the collective resources of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, and the the report that they did uh, didn't reveal anything that wasn't already known. Already published, previously published information with one noted exception, but that wasn't anything that the SBC did either. Right. 
Well, you're listening to Real Truth for Today, and I'm your host, Pastor Jeff Shreve. And in the studio is Pastor Mike Stone, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, and also a candidate for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. Southern Southern Baptist Convention meets in New Orleans uh, June 13th and 14th. And uh, we have issues in the Southern Baptist Convention that we need to address, and we need to uh, change direction. Don't go away. American Family Studios was started back in 2011 as a way to advance the Christian worldview into an increasingly media-rich culture. Media is like such a powerful tool to communicate the gospel. I love writing stories, getting in my office, and just thinking, how can we portray this concept of who God's character is? And to get to use the gifts that God has given me is really a joy. AmericanFamilyStudios.net What does the American Family Association stand for? We believe that our ministry, as well as everything in the heavens and on earth, belongs to God, and our role is that of a trusted manager. These values and more are part of our mission to inform, equip, and activate individuals to strengthen the moral foundations of our culture. We also support the church. We want to be a leading organization in biblical worldview training for cultural transformation. Thank you for standing with us. This is Don Shank with today's global update from the Tide Ministry, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ worldwide in the languages people were born to speak. Recent reports show that Afghanistan is on the brink of a mental health catastrophe for young girls, some of whom have been forced out of school and into arranged marriages. Many women are pushing back against this restrictive regime, but with so much opposition and not much outside help, most are growing despondent. The Tide Ministry radio broadcasts directly reach listeners to share the truth of the gospel, that they are loved by a God who sent His own Son to die for them. By showing them that a powerful, loving God sacrificed Himself for them, listeners learn how important they are to Christ and will see those around them and themselves in a different light. To learn how you can pray for and encourage people whose lives have been eternally impacted by hearing the good news of Christ in their own language, visit thetide.org. That's thetide.org. American Family Association President Tim Wildman. Why does AFA exist? Well, we're here to inform, equip, and activate individuals and families to transform the culture. We want to make an impact on our country for Christ. That's the reason my dad, Don Wildman, started this ministry 40-plus years ago. Dad was concerned about the direction America was headed, and he was determined to do something about it. Maybe that describes you today. If it does, I want to strongly encourage you to consider a charitable gift annuity to American Family Association Foundation. This will benefit you, and it will ensure that we stay in the fight for a long, long time to come. That's the AFA Foundation. Call the AFA Foundation at 800-326-4543, extension 345. That's 800-326-4543, extension 345. Welcome back to Real Truth for Today. Pastor Jeff Shreve here talking to Pastor Mike Stone, uh, the candidate for the presidency of the Southern Baptist Convention. The Southern Baptist Convention meets in New Orleans in June, June 13th and 14th. 
And uh, Mike, let me ask you this, because uh, the Southern Baptist, the, the annual convention, we talked about not very many people go relative to how many Southern Baptists we have. And people have made the case, hey, we ought to open up voting to people that can watch online and, and that kind of thing, which uh, if you could control it, I would be um, I would be open to that because I, I think more people do need to be able to vote. And a lot of people can't make it to Anaheim or Nashville or New Orleans. Uh, but what so if if people say, OK, we want to change the direction, we recognize that there are problems and we're going to elect Mike Stone to be the president. How much can you actually do to change the direction in the convention? Well, Southern Baptists, by our own uh, biblical doctrine, our ecclesiology, we are congregational uh, by and large in our governance. And that is reflected even at local associational meetings, state conventions and the national convention. We don't have a stomach for centralized power. So we elect a president, not a pope or a czar, but a president who has limited power, but those powers are very real. And the situation we're facing in the SBC right now, I believe that those real but limited powers are actually on point to address the challenges that we face. For example, the Southern Baptist Convention president he begins a process that ultimately ends up with who sits on the various boards of trustees for the seminaries, the ERLC, the, all the entities and agencies of the SBC. Now, the president does not appoint those trustees, but again, he begins a process. He appoints a group that, that begins to lead out in that process. So the president has real, real influence uh, over who would sit on the governing boards of the various entities of the Southern Baptist Convention. The president also unilaterally appoints what we call the resolutions committee. A lot of the statements that come out of the convention, a lot of the things that end up in the headlines are not organizational actions. They're not the appointments of people or those kind of uh, financial decisions that are made. A lot of the things that make the headlines are resolutions that are passed. Your listeners are probably aware of what's called Resolution 9 uh, that had positive things to say about critical race theory and intersectionality. That was something that came through the Resolutions Committee, a committee appointed by the president. And suffice to say, if I were serving as president, the people that I would appoint uh, to the SBC Resolutions Committee would never bring forward a resolution like that, not because I would be in control of the actions of that committee, but the kind of people that I would appoint would not be the kind of people that would bring out a resolution of that nature. The other issue that the president would be able to speak into is the appointment of what most likely will be another task force, a year-long task force that will speak into and advise the convention, make recommendations to the convention related to our ongoing approach to the sexual abuse issue. Uh, we are headed in a direction of publishing uh, a, a database of those that are deemed to be credibly accused. And I've addressed this in the past. I know it's a difficult and a challenging issue, but I'm not in favor of the SBC publishing a, a list on a website, for example, of people who have been credibly accused of committing some sin or some crime. Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're, the word credibly is just modifying the word accused, not someone who has been convicted. I'm all in favor of publishing 
the names of those who've been convicted, right. the names of those who perhaps confessed to that. In some interview, uh, sometimes a person may confess in a civil case, even though the criminal statute of limitations has uh, expired, so they will never be a convicted sex offender. They'll never be on a sex offender registry list. But if they have under oath, for example, in a civil case or some other type of interview, if they are on record admitting to something, if they're a confessed abuser or a convicted abuser, I am 100% in favor of publicizing that information in a centralized location so that the churches of the SBC can go and find out, hey, this youth pastor that we're uh, interviewing or this senior pastor who uh, is a candidate for our pulpit, um, does the Southern Baptist Convention have any information that he has confessed or been convicted uh, anywhere previously in his life? I am totally in favor of publishing that information because uh, those who have been trained and skilled in being finders of fact, not in reviewers of accusations, Mm -hmm. but finders of fact, have determined that that person has either confessed in a a proper setting Mm -hmm. or has been convicted uh, in a criminal court. But I am not in favor of publishing a database and potentially ruining the reputation and defaming the names, harming the ministries of people who have been accused. Even if, Jeff, even if we say, well, they're not merely accused, they're credibly accused. Well, who gets to determine that the threshold of credibility has been reached? And by what standard and according to what measuring rod are we going to do that? Um, In part, I'm not in favor of it because one advantage of social media One advantage of the explosion of the Internet is any church that would be checking the SBC database to find out if there are accusations about some potential candidate for their church. Mm -hmm. If you go to Google, you will most likely be able to find that information where others are out there making those accusations uh, on their own social media pages, websites, blogs, things of that nature. But I don't think the Southern Baptist Convention should be involved in publishing the names of those who have been accused of certain things. And uh, those recommendations have been coming through in recent years through presidentially appointed task forces. And the way that a recommendation could come back to the convention most easily is through the next presidentially appointed task force. And uh, I would be committed to appoint a task force that that I believe took a more biblical approach on this issue. And uh, this is a disagreement I have, Jeff, with, with brothers and sisters who love Jesus, who love the Bible, who hate sexual abuse as much as I do, and I hate it as much as they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just have a different approach on this issue. Uh, the final thing that I would mention that the president can do is to help tone down some of the rhetoric. One of the most challenging aspects of this sex abuse discussion in the SBC right now is when a brother or sister has a different approach, they tend to be vilified. Mm -hmm. I've done my best, even in this interview now, to not vilify those who take a different approach. There are well-meaning, well-intentioned leaders in the SBC who think we do need to publish a credibly accused database. I can assume they have the the best of intentions and motives and hearts, Mm -hmm. but I just don't think that's the right direction. However, when I begin to say that I don't think we need a credibly accused database, next thing you know, people with positions like mine are accused of being in favor of covering up Mm -hmm. sexual abuse or, you know, supporting uh, pedophiles. And that's not a a biblical posture to take toward brothers and sisters. Uh, We've got to be able to have honest 
debate, discussion, and, and disagreement where necessary so that we can move this conversation forward in a way that helps to protect the vulnerable, train and resource churches, care for those who have been tragically abused, while at the same time not doing it in a way that needlessly jeopardizes uh, the financial resources of the Southern Baptist Convention. Yeah, very good. Well, one of the things, I, I've had this discussion with several people. Uh, I remember talking to Janet Mefford and Paige Patterson and, and others, to Chuck Kelly, um, about, okay, so you see these guys, because the New Testament doesn't seem to have a, um, a designation for someone who's a believer but they seem to be working against the mission of the church. You know, we have the, Jesus said, beware of the, the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing and literally are ravenous wolves. And so you look at some people and you say, okay, that, that person seems to be a brother in Christ, but he seems to be working against what we're trying to do. You know, the big issue, uh, women in ministry. Um, that's a pretty clear-cut, black-and-white issue in Scripture. Right. And those that are pushing for women in ministry, it's like, why are you doing that when the Bible is very clear that women are not supposed to exercise authority over a man? So how would you view that? Where where do you put that? What category do you put that in in the New Testament? What What is that guy? Paul describes those uh, as enemies of the cross. And I think you can be an enemy of the cross without being an intentional enemy of the cross. Paul described in his warning, his farewell address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he said, after my departure, there are going to be some ravenous wolves that, mm-hmm. that, that come in from the outside seeking to devour the flock. And even from among your own number, men will rise up and uh, they will, they're not going to be concerned about the flock. They're trying to draw away uh, people after themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the Southern Baptist Convention needs to be led by those who love the Southern Baptist Convention and who love the gospel and love the Word of God and stop doing what seems to me giving so much ear and attention to those who are outside of our work and in many cases outside of the gospel. Uh, They do not have the best interest of the kingdom of God at heart, but far too many of our leaders seem to be very interested in making sure that they don't get upset with us. I'll, I'll cite by way of example, early in this sex abuse uh, process, uh, a high leader in the Southern Baptist Convention said to me, I was the chairman of the national board at that time, he said, Mike, do you realize the New York Times has said something positive about the Southern Baptist Convention? When was the last time the New York Times said something positive about the SBC? Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? I don't think he was expecting my answer. I think he thought he was being rhetorical. Mm -hmm. I said, no. No, it's not. Uh, when when a leftist paper like the New York Times is saying positive things about us, it should be cause of grave concern, mm-hmm. not cause of great celebration. And uh, I don't think we need to be trying to appeal to or appease the culture, but we should be seeking right. to just simply live in the sufficiency and authority of the Scripture and seek the pleasure and the favor of God. Uh, good answer. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the, this idea, you know, hey, the world's watching, the world's watching, the world. Well, God is watching. Mm-hmm. And so what are we doing that pleases him? Because if you please God, you're not going to please the world. And if the world hates you, Jesus said, know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, we don't we don't go about trying to be obnoxious for the purpose of being obnoxious. Well, I got to get everybody to hate me. You just lift up the name of Jesus and you go by the book 
and they're going to come after you. Yeah. And and Mike, let me just ask you this because some of our listeners may uh, have a question about this. In the in the uh, convention in Nashville, you got confronted uh, what a day before the convention officially opened. And what what happened in that situation? Because I know that got blown out that you were right. abusive to an abuse victim or something like that. Yeah, my wife and I were walking through the convention hallway. And if you've ever been to the Southern Baptist Convention or other professionals who've gone to a national convention or conference in one of these, uh, you know, downtown mega convention centers, there are thousands of people uh, there in the hallways. Uh, my wife and I were trying to get back to our hotel walking through the building. We, st- we stopped over to the side because the traffic was all coming the wrong way. So we stepped over to the side. I was a, um, a leading candidate for the presidency of the convention. So you can imagine when I stepped over to the side, people start stepping over to speak to me. And they're sort of waiting in these concentric circles, mm-hmm. waiting, you know, their turn to speak. One of those was a young lady who was a sex abuse survivor. And she began to talk to me about some of the concerns she had, some disagreements that she had with me. And uh, certainly the pastors in your audience can understand if you've ever been confronted by someone who was upset with something you had just preached or done, and you're standing in the foyer of your church, you stand there and you politely nod and you say, yes, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way and right. things of that nature. Jeff, it was as polite as that. After I left that area, my phone started blowing up, being tagged on Twitter as if I had just verbally accosted this person and created some... Uh, some scene there in the convention hallway that I kind of walked away and left her there in tears, crumpled, uh, these sorts mm-hmm. of things. I, one, of the, one of the parts of this story is I immediately contacted that civic arena, that convention center, and asked if they had surveillance video uh, from that encounter. I found out that they did. I requested that it be preserved, any video and audio of that. Uh, by the way, guilty people don't do that. Guilty people don't beg, oh, please let there be some documentation of what actually happened. Unknown to me, that that video was passed on to the Southern Baptist Convention as part of an investigation. And one of the attorneys for the Southern Baptist Convention later told me, this is how I I discovered that they had actually viewed it. Uh, The attorney for the convention told me that he had seen it and that it validated and completely exonerated me, validated my version of the story. But one of the challenges is, Jeff... I've personally requested that video. Uh, the deacons of my church who were doing an internal investigation, I mean, their pastor had been named in this way publicly. Right. They, they were right. I requested and asked them uh, to investigate this matter. Uh, my deacon body requested a copy of that video, and we can't get it from the Southern Baptist Convention. It seems to me, it seems to me that if the video furthers the narrative, we're going to talk about it and include it in the report. But if the video does not further the narrative, then it can't see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that we were about truth and transparency. Right. But but the reality is we live in such a culture that if you say uh, to, in this case, a sex abuse victim, if you say to them or of them that with deepest respect, the things that you're saying aren't true, the stuff you're sharing is not accurate. You are seen as re-victimizing, re-abusing the abuser, and uh, that's not a biblically tenable position. No, not at all. Well, we've been talking today to Pastor Mike Stone, the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Blackshear, Georgia, and the candidate for president of the Southern Baptist Convention that meets June 13th and 14th in New Orleans, Louisiana, and uh, very important election, uh, very important. 
very, very important issues that are facing the Southern Baptist Convention. So ask you to pray. And if you're a Southern Baptist, ask you to come to New Orleans and get your church to elect you as a messenger and come to New Orleans, get involved. And uh, remember, we always talk on this program, shine and share. Shine for Christ and share what great things the Lord has done for you, and God will use you as his witness. I'll be with you again tomorrow. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.